Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Welcome to Location Matters. My name's Sarah Butler and I'm your host. And today we're going to be talking about something called photogrammetry. If you want to build a digital twin, you're going to be pretty keen to get the highest resolution imagery available to get the detail you need for your projects. Without the imagery, you can't build a full-scale digital replica of a development site, whether urban or rural. But the quality of imagery can differ from provider to provider, depending on what technology they use for capture and how the imagery is processed after capture. Thankfully, we have a couple of great speakers to talk about this topic today. I'm really happy to be joined um, by David Byrne from Aerometrics. This is the first time we've had someone from Aerometrics on the podcast. We've definitely spoken about Aerometrics before in our three seasons. Uh, So David, really, really happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks a lot for that, Sarah. And we're also joined by Nick Chai. So our regular listeners won't be unfamiliar with Nick. We've had him on the podcast a few times now, but... I don't know, for me personally, Nick, you've kind of been like my digital twin guru when I don't understand um, how things work or we're looking at cool new things like using VR and digital twin. It's usually Nick that I'm talking to. So I'm really glad you could be with us on this conversation today as well, Nick. Uh, hey, yeah, I've been working in the that digital twin space, mostly in the mining industry through NGIS for quite a while now. Um, so photogrammetry really comes hand in hand with that sort of uh, technology and that platform particularly. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate you yeah, being here with us today. But I want to dive straight in, getting to know you, David, um, being your first time on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. We're, we're dialing you in from Adelaide today. You've been working for Aerometrics for 20 years, I've read. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks for that, Sarah. Yeah, look, um, yes, I'm a, a long-timer at Aerometrics. Yeah, started back in 2000. I guess at that stage, we're a small company, uh, Brisbane-based, Adelaide-based. Um, I think in the Adelaide office where I am, you know, we're only about three or four staff. And look, I guess we've always specialised, I mean, the company has always specialised in uh, aerial photography, going right back to the film days even before that time. And you know, probably in the mid 2000s we started to see the conversion of I guess aerial photography to digital and Aerometrics was one of the well was the first uh, company in Australia to purchase a large format uh, digital camera and and that was a revolution for the for the industry I think we saw around that time in 2005 or 2003 we saw the inception of Google Earth and it was a strange thing for our company you know because uh we were charging for our aerial photography and all of a sudden the company was putting it out for free and we thought, oh no, our days are numbered. Um, but uh, Google became one of our better customers and and um, I think the thirst for for geospatial data really started at that time. And, you know, now I think everybody's use of mobile phones are using maps and GPS and things like that on a daily basis. But yeah, look, I mean, my role at Aerometrics has always been sort of a technical role. Um, I guess I started as the chief photogrammetrist um, here. I was part of the, the staff management buyout of the company in 2011 and became the technical director. Um, very involved in the inception of our 3D product line, which we'll talk a lot more about uh, during this podcast. And I'm now the, currently the, the chief operating officer. So a little bit more broad, sort of looking at all parts of the business, but still uh, like to remain very involved in, in the technical side of the business, in particular the 3D product line. Awesome. 
I want it for my list uh, for our listeners today. Um, David, you've got quite a large um, picture hanging up behind you um, that I can see on the video, which looks like an aerial photograph. I'm wondering if you can tell me what that is because it's pretty cool. Yeah, look, well, it's simply just an aerial photograph. It's, it comes from our Metromat uh, collection of imagery uh, that we capture over the metropolitan areas uh, several times a year. Um, I guess why that's special to me is it's captured from our Metrocam imagery, which which was a design of my own. And, you know, it's a really high resolution. I love the contrast in it, you know, city in winter, showing really strong shadows. Um, and, and it's almost an artistic picture with those those long dark shadows and the very bright buildings. I was wondering if it was, um, you know, a place that was special to you or if it was something you'd picked out. Um, maybe I thought it was Adelaide. <laughs> it, it is Adelaide. Good spotting, Sarah. Nice. Okay, well, let's jump into the photogrammetry bit because we haven't talked about this on the Location Matters podcast before. Um, could you explain, David, what photogrammetry is um, for any of our listeners that mightn't be too familiar with the concept? Yeah, look, I mean, photogrammetry as a science has been around, you know, pretty much since the inception of photography, really. And um, in its simplest sense, it is the measurement from photographs. Generally speaking, it takes more than one photograph of overlapping photographs and the intersecting rays of light will tell you a location or a coordinate um, or a measurement. So, you know, traditionally photogrammetry has been straight down photography uh, captured from the air and, um, you know, products like orthoimagery or orthomosaics uh, are fairly mainstream products used in in uh, GIS um, and geospatial platforms. But the same technology, the intersecting of rays of light and measurement, um, you know, work with all sorts of photography and, you know, with the uh, more creative camera types like oblique cameras, um, you know, it starts lending itself to, to more than just the simple 2D type image, but to um, all sorts of 3D products as well, um, moving right along to the, the really high fidelity 3D meshes, which we're starting to see today. Awesome. I mean, this is something I've been hearing about a lot in the NGIS office. Um, you know, we, we had Malcolm um, who from Skyline who was on a call with us the other day. David, do you know Malcolm? I know Malcolm very well, yes, yes. Awesome. We've had a, a long involvement with, um, with Malcolm and with Skyline, yes. Yeah, you know, Skyline and, and Malcolm in particular are good friends of NGIS and we speak to him often. But, um, you know, Nick, you're somebody that uses Skyline a fair bit in your line of work. What role does, you know, a technology like Skyline have to play when it comes to um, to using all of this imagery? Skyline sort of brings all of the data together into a single place. But so, you know, there's loads of different uh, vector and raster resources that people will use. So by, by what, what I mean by that is, um, you know, say you want to see roads data or cadastral information or tenement boundaries, that sort of thing. Uh, that's sort of the stuff that we'd call vector data. So we'd bring that in, but then we need to have some sort of uh, base image underneath. And that base image will often be, you know, an author image uh, created from companies like um, Aerometrics. And now more recently, uh, that base image is in 3D. So uh, that's where the photo mesh processing software comes into the picture where Aerometrics will do the capture and process it into something like PhotoMesh to create this uh, 3D mesh product to be used as a base uh, image or base product to give context to all the other uh, GIS data that you display on top of it. So yeah, in 
at least in the space that I've worked in as a consultant, uh, we've used that to create the digital twin in mining environments for all sorts of different mining companies. Um, so that they can have context for when they do make decisions, like if they want to build a, a workshop somewhere or they're going to create a new ramp, they want to analyze uh, this new ore body in relation to everything else that they have. And yeah, so there's all sorts of uh, use cases for the digital twin. So Skyline, um, as far as I understand it as well, the, when you talk about photo mesh, this is a product, isn't it, that they've created um, specifically for this purpose. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, so photo mesh is that uh, processing software. So, so what happens during the capture is you can't take a photo that spans the entire, uh, say, the entire mine um, in one go. Um, so to often to create the... I mean, David will correct me on this one. I'm not saying this right. Often to create the uh, ortho, you'll capture heaps of images that will overlap on one another, and then PhotoMesh will join them together into a single image or into a 3D mesh um, from there. So I, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that, David. You're <laughs> Did the he expert get it right, David? Process for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, you know, and, you know, we're very involved in Skyline and, you know, there are many photogrammetric packages, um, and like you say, Nick, you know, combining all those images uh, to create things like ortho photos or, or what's commonly called now, like the photo mesh is, is almost a product in itself. Um, it can be called many things like reality mesh, 3D mesh, um, and often photo mesh as well, regardless of whether it was created in the photo mesh uh, uh, platform. But what we've found, you know, great about the Skyline software is you know, when we started in 3D, um, which is, you know, getting getting on close to, to 10 years now, uh, we were really looking for a platform which could handle that really rich data and be able to uh, deliver it to clients that may not necessarily have 3D experience, uh, but deliver it in a meaningful way where people could easily use it um, with all their other geospatial data um, overlays and, um, and, and get valuable information out of it through its uh, analysis tools. Yeah, awesome. I, I'm really interested to hear more from both of you actually about, I guess more from an industry perspective, what industries you both feel get the most value out of using, you know, the combination of all these things. So great photogrammetry um, options, something like Skyline. Where do you see the best value for different industries? Is it in where we see our more built environments? Does it also work in a regional sense as well? David, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, well, look, having worked in the 3D space, um, we've had experience over hundreds of projects. And and I guess one thing about probably 3D, but, you know, where geospatial data is going in general, it is becoming a lot more uh, widely used across many different industries. Um, but 3D in particular really opens itself to new industries. You know, we've, you know, probably our, our strength is in, you know, working with infrastructure projects and planning and development and, and activity centres and so forth. But... You know, with the fidelity of 3D data, it starts opening up other industries, um, whether that be gaming, tourism, you know, more your more visual uh, type industries, um, community consultation, all sorts of uh, planning type activities. Yeah, so look, I mean, we see, see it used uh, widely. It also lends itself to not just the built environment, but also, you know, the natural environment, whether that be you know, things like coastal areas, and we've done a lot of work in coastal erosion. Um, you know, it could be more 
remote type areas as well. But um, yeah, it, it's fairly wide and varied uh, these days. But certainly the you know the high resolution three D data does open itself up to a lot a lot more industries. We're, we've really sort of our product is sort of evolving where we're sort of going higher and higher resolution. And as we go higher resolution, it opens up more industries. We're now incorporating uh, ground level imagery into our um, 3D mesh, photo mesh type uh, data, um, which, you know, really, you know, does start to uh, work in sort of, you know, the gaming sort of engines and so forth being, a you know, really high fidelity, almost like that true digital twin. It's like, you know, being in a particular location. Coming from a household with lots of gaming nerds, I'm really excited to delve into that a little bit deeper in just a sec. Um, but Nick, I mean, you've got heaps of experience um, in this space, like we just said, but I know that from, especially from a mining perspective, what are your views in terms of that in, when it comes to something like the mining space? Because you are dealing in areas that, yeah, there isn't a huge amount of, uh, I guess, or there isn't a massive built environment. Um, how would a mining company be using, you know, this type yeah. of technology? Yeah, so I guess over the last couple of years, we've helped uh, mining clients visualize their mine in the 3D space and their mine's always changing. So having that true like single operating picture for everyone to work off of uh, within the 3D space sort of gives everyone a really good perspective on how the mine's evolving. Because as you know, you know, they're digging downwards often or like, you know, across a pit wall. Um, so getting everyone on the same page is 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 one of the key um, benefits of the of the platform, so that everyone's you know making decisions uh, together. Uh, but more recently, we've I've been working with uh, Winyama a fair bit, and this technology is starting to become really valuable in heritage uh, use cases as well. So, and I know like David just mentioned, they're starting to incorporate that ground uh, captured imagery as well. Um, further to that, so. When, when they're about to clear a bit of land or they're trying to assess um, the value of a cultural heritage site, um, it's really valuable for them to be able to capture that area uh, in a mesh uh, using ground level imagery as well. And I've seen, um, I've seen examples of artifacts being found on site. And then what they can do is they can also capture that in a mesh and then capture that digitally and send that through as part of that um, heritage survey report. So that's sort of, sort of something that I know when Yama's trying to um, get off the ground as sort of a standard practice as part of uh, these surveys. Um, and I can see like, I can see the photo mesh and or, you know, photogrammetry in general being a really important technology in that space. Yeah, the indigenous angle um, in, in terms of heritage is really interesting and not actually something I thought we'd be chatting about on the podcast, but I mean, I'd love to talk about that further. So do you mean that um, Winyama, and for our listeners, Winyama is NGIS's um, Indigenous Geospatial Consultancy that we have within the NGIS group. Um, Nick, do you mean that you're using this technology to basically, is as a communication tool between companies and the community, or is it just for the company? Uh, yeah, so facilitated by the company, but to communicate um, that site to, you know, traditional owner groups, it's it's just... It's a lot easier to talk to somebody about something when you have a visual aid like that for traditional owner groups, especially, um, rather than have a document with text in it, you know, uh, or, or static pictures. You know, if, if they can move around the terrain, um, 
they can see landmarks uh, from a human perspective rather than, um, you know, maybe from an ortho perspective. Uh, it sort of sort of puts them in that space a little bit better. I think it's a good point, Nick. I mean, 3D data, um, I think people understand it, you know, because it looks like the real world and that's essentially what we're doing with photogrammetry is we're capturing that real world and yeah. you've got this essentially a, a, a digital twin, whether that be an archaeology site or heritage site or 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 a um, CBD type area. Yeah, a powerful um, mode for, for storytelling and knowledge sharing, I'm sure. Um, and really great to hear that technology is helping to link that discussion um, because I know that can be a pretty hard discussion at times when it comes to um, exploration and um, development sites, especially up here in, you know, north of Perth, um, up in the Kimberley and the Pilbara. Um, so that's really positive to hear that. But going on the storytelling angle, I want to go back to what you were saying, David, about the gaming side of things. I think that's really interesting. Can you explain this a little bit further? How is this being used in gaming? Thanks, Sarah. Look, I mean, I guess um, what we're seeing is certainly interesting gaming. I mean, I think the fidelity of the data is the main thing. And obviously all games are different. You know, if you're doing a flight sim, you're probably needing different resolution data to if you're using a first-person shooter where you're walking around in a building. Um, but what we are seeing is the interest there from the really high-fidelity 3D models where they are becoming those um, almost true representations of the real world. But probably where we're seeing the biggest strength in gaming is not so much in the gaming industry itself, but using gaming technology like the gaming platforms and then having those used in other industries. So having your, your engineering type verticals utilizing game engines for their geospatial data rather than using um, perhaps traditional uh, geospatial type engines. Sounds familiar, Nick. I'm thinking about Nick yeah. here when in the NGIS office, we actually one day, Nick had this big crowd of people around his desk and I was like, what is Nick doing? All of my team, all of the marketing team are over at Nick's desk wearing VR goggles and they're zooming around and they're looking at something and I said, what are they doing? And I went down there, it's exactly what Nick was doing. He was taking them on a virtual fly through with VR goggles. Is that what you were doing? Was that all a gaming engine sort of piece as well? Uh, that wasn't a gaming engine, actually. That was uh, Terra Explorer. Could uh, have me. <laughs> desktop product. Yeah, straight out of the box. Um, it supports uh, the Oculus Rift, Oculus Rift headset. So, um, and it just on the more recent release, 7.21, um, the user can actually fly around in that space. So if we're starting, if, if what David's saying is like getting that ground captured imagery, that's uh, that's a really cool bit of news for me because being so when you do when you do the capture and you're flying over the top right and you're getting that 3D environment when you go to the ground level in the GIS system which is not really designed for um, you get all this sort of messy bits and pieces of 3D because it's not being captured by the aerial photography um, and it's not really intended for that use so when you put the VR headset on and you go down to that level it's it's not as clear like it's a, you get like artifacts and things and cars don't look quite right. So uh, if Aerometrics is starting to do this ground captured imagery, all of the terrain when you're walking around it in VR is going to start looking like, it's going to start looking real, like as, as you would in a video game, except um, with real life imagery, right? So um, yeah, so that, that'll be really cool. We, yeah, um, the Skyland products support VR straight out of the box. So I think it's only one of the only products that support VR and GIS all at the same time. So you imagine bringing in 
uh, cloud data sources straight into a VR environment. That doesn't that doesn't exist in any other platform that I know of. It's usually like, say you're using Unreal Engine or something like that, or uh, Unity, which is where I started in that space, trying to bring GIS into that gaming space. It's a real pain because the, the gaming engine doesn't have a um, like any knowledge of spatial information. So you're, you're trying to then have to implement spatial into that gaming engine environment, uh, which didn't exist before. Whereas in the Skyline platform, it's just got all these connectors that you can just connect in, and then you just sort of put the headset on, you're off off you go. You just need that 3D mesh underneath it for it to be really good. I see David like nodding and smiling and going, yep, yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's a really interesting space. You know, we're seeing some great developments and it's, it's a great thing about our industry, the geospatial industry, because it, it is such a technical industry and it's evolving all the time. And we start seeing those melding of different type of industries like the gaming and the geospatial. And, and I think we'll see more of it, you know, going forward into the future. I mean, what gaming engines offer, not necessarily like Nick explained the geospatial experience because they're not necessarily geospatial platforms, but what it offers is that, you know, that realism due to its lighting effects and, you know, the, the ability to be able to create realistic shadows and, and things like that, that some of the uh, geospatial engines don't have. But, you know, I think, um, you know, whether it's geospatial platforms or gaming platforms, it's, it's all moving forward, you know, with VR and the high fidelity imagery, it's, it's quite exciting about where it's going. So, and I, yeah, I think it'll open itself to more, more and more industries. It's something I didn't touch on, and I guess it's sort of, you know, similar to gaming in a way, but, you know, a lot of photogrammetry models and these 3D mesh models are now being used as backdrops for the movie industry and things like that. So, again, recreating worlds where you don't necessarily have to be in what might be a difficult location to film um, to, to, to be able to do that filming it all in a 3d virtual world that's amazing so like you know like having actors in front of a green screen basically and then using photogrammetry as it to superimpose into the green screen is that what you're talking about yeah, absolutely oh that's yeah. so cool god imagine yeah. the movie companies will be like man we're gonna save so much money flying people around <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. i saw something really cool once at a conference once um about like AutoCAD, I was listening to like a speaker and they were talking about how they, you know, integrate with the movie industry and like all special effects and everything like that. I had no idea. It just goes to show you that this is how good technology is getting because the viewers, we just have no idea what's going on. But um, it sounds to me like the gaming side of things and VR integration using something like Skyline in conjunction with Aerometrics data could be if what Nick was saying was true and that, you know, the, the ground level 3D data can be you know, captured by you guys um, is that this is going to become a really powerful tool in the sense of if you bring in geospatial data, if you can bring in all these different data sources as a communication tool between business and the community. So that could be using this technology, using VR headsets, for instance, to um, take community groups through like a development in their urban area, like we're building this new building here, come to the community consultation, put on the goggles, walk around the building, or have a look around and see how it's going to look instead of just having somebody standing up and telling you what's happening and what it's going to, what they think it's going to look like, being able to actually show and tell what is happening. But then I also think about it from a mining perspective or, you know, any other kind of site where you've got people flying in and flying out and it changes the way you could do safety inductions and introduce people to a site that they might not have been to before. I mean, are these all things that you've heard happening around the industry as well, Nick? Uh, yeah, inductions is the use case that we 
seem to hear a lot about for the, um, the VR stuff and, and just digital twin in general. But yeah, just going back to the heritage use case, we, I think that is quite prominent at the moment in WA. So uh, we're, yeah, we're going to be looking at that in the near future. Um, but yeah, already we, we're using it on, to communicate uh, within an organization and a lot of our clients will ask for the platform to be made public or to give access to external contractors so that they can go and scope a job out without having to go out to site or something like that. So having that up to date and, you know, like real world accurate imagery and capture is uh, really important. Um, actually saves a lot of money uh, just having that platform available to everyone. Mm, definitely. Well, David, I'd love to hear from you about what's happening at Aerometrics. What's coming up next? What's new and exciting for you guys? What have you got planned? Is there anything you can give away to us on this podcast that people don't know about yet? <laughs> uh, look, we, we love pushing the boundaries and, you know, we've got a very active uh, research and development team here. And, you know, I guess Aerometrics now being a sort of public company, um, you know, we are able to invest into more things like research and development. So, you know, that'll go a long way to supporting our 3D product lines, but also, you know, a, a big emphasis of Aerometrics is, you know, converting more to a subscription type company. So having off the shelf data sets available for people to either purchase online or subscribe to. And, um, you know, our research sort of uh, lends itself a lot towards that. And, you know, I think you'll see a lot more activity from Aerometrics in that space. But, you know, I think we just love being at the cutting edge, whether that's designing camera systems or doing amazing 3D tech. Um, yeah, and just keep keep pushing the boundaries. In terms of, um, you know, just a, a question that's just come to mind for me, is it like, do you capture all over Australia or, you know, is it certain areas? If somebody comes to you and says, we want, you know, to use Aerometrics data um, and you don't have that place captured, is it something that you offer? How does that work? Yeah, good question, Sarah. Look, we work in many ways. I mean, traditionally we've been a project-based company where a company would come to us with specifications of what they want, when they want it and so forth. And, and we would capture imagery or 3D data for them. Um, where we're sort of moving towards is, you know, having that um, catalogue of data available where people can get access to it really quickly and cheaply. So that certainly goes for our more, yeah, 2D imagery, your ortho imagery, which, you know, we're capturing multiple times a year in the metro areas and, and most of the regional towns sort of once a year or, or something like that. But we're also capturing... 3D data over some fairly large areas that we're capturing on a frequency of about once a year. And then we sort of start to get in and focus on the CBD type areas where we're, you know, we're capturing rather than sort of 10, 7, 10 centimetres, we're capturing down at 2 centimetre resolution imagery. Um, but of course, then incorporating projects as people have got, um, you know, development activities where we might really focus on a particular area, whether that be greater resolution or an area that, you know, might be outside our, our capture program. I saw Nick's face light up just then when you said something. Was it seven to ten centimetres? Did I get that right? Two centimetres. Two centimetres. Sounds pretty cool. I saw Nick going, hell yeah, that sounds awesome. (laughs) And that's what we've tried to do with our 3D product. I mean, not many people are capturing at that two centimetre sort of resolution and we've really specialised in that. And, you know, not many people are using helicopters for capture either and that's what we use for that particular product. And it allows us to be very strategic and, and, and capture that really high fidelity uh, type 
product that may not be, you know, a typical consumer type geospatial uh, data set. Um, so we're really pushing the boundaries there. And as I said earlier, incorporating ground level imagery is taking it to another level. You know, I don't know what resolution that is. It must be getting down to the millimetres. There must be a fair bit of, um, like, say, depending on weather conditions, um, like lighting, how do you actually plan a two centimetre image capture? Because it... I imagine like, you know, the light changes throughout the day and that sort of thing and that it's going to affect your, your product. Actually, that's a fantastic question, Nick. Um, for some of our CBD type areas where we're, we're dealing with dense cities, I mean, you can think about Sydney and Melbourne and you've got narrow gaps between buildings and the shadows are very dark down there and so forth. So trying to get good quality imagery is difficult and that's where the helicopter really helps. But one of the other things that really helps is those really high quality products we'll try and capture under cloud so that we have completely even lighting conditions and it doesn't matter that we're joining imagery from different times of the day um, if we've got no shadows in the imagery then you know those images go together really well and it lends itself to other really cool things as an end product as well i mean um, consider doing uh, shadow simulation on a 3D model that has no shadows on it works really well. Whereas if you've already got the shadows burnt into the imagery, you, you know, it looks a bit funny yeah, doing shadow simulation when you've already got shadows there. Yeah, yeah, cool. It's good to get a bit of uh, insight how you, <laughs> how yeah. that gets done. So looking at general aerial photography can be a real tricky thing because we're always dealing with weather, we're dealing with air traffic control. Um, so lots of things have to come together to be able to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's quite an operation. Um, you know, dealing, dealing with all those factors and dealing with the air crew and aircraft and so forth. So if you were going to fly over Sydney, let's just say as an example, the CBD, and it's a cloudy day, could you do it on a cloudy day or does it have to be a clear day? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, that's what I was sort of getting to. A cloudy day is, is sometimes perfect um, because you do have that even even shadow. So we can actually see right into the gaps between the buildings. So, so when we have done our very dense cities, we have strategically tried to focus on capturing undercloud, which for you know, aerial photography company seems a bit strange because typically aerial photography companies like to capture when it's nice and sunny and clear skies. But in this particular case, the, yeah, that's a, a little bit different. So for that high resolution 3D, um, yeah, undercloud is the go. But if we were doing a large area over an entire metropolitan area, we'd probably be catching in, in sunny conditions because that's a, a lot easier to predict and, and you know, get that, um, that consistency. And so would you use a helicopter for that capture or an aeroplane? No, on our large area captures, we would use uh, fixed wing aircraft. Um, you know, they're, they're a lot more economical than helicopters, but if we want really high fidelity and, you know, more that strategic sort of uh, look of an area where we're getting between all the gaps, then we'd use helicopters. So we, we mix and match horses for courses, depending on what we're trying to achieve and, um, and, and what the product is and what the client might be after. So cool. I, yeah, Nick, but thank you for asking that question because I didn't think to ask that. That's been really interesting. I wonder if next time you guys are flying over Perth, if we, like Nick and I just walk outside the NJS office and we stand there, are we going to be in the photograph? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, look, if you, if you time it just right, I mean, our guys use um, tracking on all our aircraft, so we know where they are at any any time. And, Love it. Um, <laughs> and often they'll try and jump in, uh, jump in our photography, whether that's lay down on the lawn, you know, in a big star shape or something like that. I love that. Oh, cool. Okay, awesome. That's all we've actually got time for today. But before we go, um, David, I was hoping you wouldn't mind um, 
you know, sharing some resources for some of our listeners who maybe just want to learn a little bit more about Aerometrics. Where should they go and look at that? Do you guys have a blog or, you know, should they follow you on like LinkedIn or connect with you or something like that? What would you recommend? Yeah, I think almost all of the above there, uh, Sarah. Look, we do have a an active uh, marketing team ourselves. So, you know, we are frequently updating our blogs and webinars and so forth. So you can jump on our aerometrics.com.au website for that. Um, you know, you can also go to our metromap.com.au website for, for looking at being able to uh, start looking at some of our 3D data or, you know, we can even, people can purchase um, off-the-shelf data from that store as well. But our aerometrics.com.au website, you know, the blogs, the webinars, we've got some good galleries. Um, so, you know, updating most of our social media. You can follow us on LinkedIn. A lot of our guys are very active on LinkedIn, putting uh, uh, many articles up there. Our YouTube channel is also quite active as well. And, you know, that's a great visual place to be able to see some of the 3D work we do. And, you know, we try to keep that updated regularly. Um, you'll see some of our really high fidelity incorporating ground level uh, models up there recently. But other than that, you know, I mean, a lot of the software companies, um, you know, have some really good information um, on, on photogrammetry, but, you know, sort of doing searches on photogrammetry or reality mesh or 3D mesh, that sort of thing. I, th I think you'll, you'll find that your way to some, some good, good resources. Awesome. And Nick, did you have anything you wanted to share here as well? I know you've written a couple of blogs about this type of thing for NGIS and been on a few webinars. Anything you want to share? Uh, yeah, I think those blogs are on the NGIS website. So you probably refer to those there. Um, and I guess the next podcast will be talking about uh, GIS related uh, topics. Uh, yes, because um, we've got you and um, Jack coming up again on the, the podcast. Jack hasn't. Jack Green is one of our... Um, GIS or principal GIS consultants in at the NGIS business. So Nick and Jack are going to be on and they're going to be talking all about integrating different data sources um, into GIS projects. So people working in different teams and having different approaches to things and being able to bring all that together. So if that sounds interesting for you, definitely um, stay tuned for that. Um, and all of the resources that David just mentioned um, are going to be in the show notes. So go to ngis.com.au Go to the newsroom and click on podcast and it'll take you to our Captivate FM page. Under show notes, I'm going to put hyperlinks in there for everything that Nick and David have both talked about um, so that if you want to read more about that, you can just go there. We'll keep it really easy for you. But that's all we've got time for today. Um, Nick, David, thank you guys both for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sarah. Yeah, great to be involved and love, love what NGIS is doing with their podcast. I think it's really healthy for our our geospatial community. So well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Sarah. It is a very niche crowd, the old GIS podcast. So I do appreciate you saying that, but we are, you know, we're getting more traction, which has been pretty cool. And if you want to hear more Location Matters, don't forget that you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.